All right. Well, open your Bibles to the book of Acts. If I have to tell you at this point that we're going through the book of Acts, I don't know if you've been paying attention for the past, you know, few months. But we are going through the book of Acts. We find ourselves today in Acts chapter 12. And uh, I don't know how many of you were here last week, but just to give you a recap, last week uh, there was a man named Herod, a king named Herod, who was attempting to take the life of Peter. He took James's life. He had James executed. Now, there's two different Jameses that are very important in the scripture. The first James that we're talking about that died was James, the brother of John. The other James was James, the brother of Jude. Um, most scholars believe also that's James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James. So the guy that got killed is not the guy that wrote the book of James. This is the brother of John. James and John, as you can recall, in the Gospels were called the sons of, not only the sons of Zebedee, but the sons of thunder. You know, they, were, they had a, a fire in them, and sometimes it wasn't a good fire, but uh, those two were inseparable. They followed Jesus around the same time, and uh, James was killed. And Herod saw that it pleased the people, so he was going to have Peter executed as well. Herod is a very common uh, name in the New Testament. You've probably seen it more than once. But every time you see the word Herod, it's not the same guy. Sometimes it is. Most of the time it's not. Uh, so Herod that tried to kill Jesus as a baby, that's Herod the Great. Herod um, that shows up a little bit later that executed John the Baptist, that's Herod Antipas. This is Herod, um, Herod Agrippa. So this guy, let me give you a little background on him and it'll come, in, it'll come into play later. But a little background on this guy is that he wasn't really a big shot all of his life. He was born into a very important important family, obviously the Herod family, uh, but this guy had a bit of a, bit of a problem keeping money. He liked to spend it. He liked to give it away. He liked to gamble it. And so he was broke more than once in his life. He was in prison more than once in his life, but he did one thing that helped him and he befriended um, a kid named Gaius or Caius who would later be known, uh, whose, his nickname was Caligula, and you might know Roman history, you might know Caligula turned out to be an emperor and not a very good one, kind of a crazy one, kind of a nut one. Um, Caligula was the guy we talked about a few weeks ago that had all of his troops come to the shore, come to the beach and collect shells. That was that guy. When he was young, he wasn't so nuts. Um, there was a lot of traumatic things that happened to him in his life. There was a lot of things that, that messed with him. And so Agrippa had become friends with this guy. It actually kind of helped him along, become a little bit of a teacher to him. Uh, but once again, he messed up. And one thing that he did, uh, Caligula's uncle Tiberius, uh, you know, had, had been very friendly and it, uh, had, had been very good to Agrippa. Uh, but one day Agrippa, his best buddy Caius, is, who's later going to be known as Caligula, uh, his best buddy, you know, is, is coming along just well. They're good friends. And he says out loud, I wish Tiberius would just go ahead and die so that my buddy can be emperor. Unfortunately, somebody overheard that. And, you know, it's not a democracy. We say all sorts of crazy things about our politicians now. But in, Rome, in the Roman Empire, you don't say bad things about the emperor. So Agrippa was thrown once again into prison. Everything once again was taken away from him. This was a guy who was at rock bottom more than once. But then a ship came in. For Tiberius did die, and when Caius, otherwise known as Caligula, became emperor, he made his buddy 
He made his buddy Agrippa the king over a bunch of, of the areas of Judea. And, uh, you know, he had some of Persia and some other areas too. So he, he really kind of, his, his, his luck kind of changed. And we don't believe in luck. But, you know, everything kind of started working for him when his buddy became emperor. So this is a guy, obviously, that's had his highs and he's had his lows. And he really likes people to like him. He's been raised as a, as a Jewish guy. He's been raised in the Jewish faith. Not always a good Jew, but a Jew nonetheless. And he really likes when the people like him. So when he sees that the people like that James is executed, that the powers that be like it, that the heads of the Sanhedrin like it, then he says, well, this is a good thing. He tries to execute Peter as well. As you know, the angel let Peter out of the prison because the church was praying for him. And so here's where we pick up. After Peter has escaped, Uh, Peter has shown up at the prayer meeting completely well and whole and free, and the angels let him loose. Then we pick right back up with Herod Agrippa again. And in Acts chapter 12, and we're going to skip right down to verse 20. It says, now he, being Herod, now Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, And with one accord, they came to him, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace, because their country was fed by the king's country. So they were mad at the king, they were upset with him, but they realized you can't stay upset with him for too long, because if 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 we're mad at the king, if we're in rebellion, then we don't have any food. So what they do in verse 21, on an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. So at this point, they want to get on his good side. They've been on his bad side. They don't like his bad side. They're starting to starve. So they're trying to get back on the king's good side. They show up and he delivers an address to them. In verse 22, the people kept crying out, it's the voice of God and not a man. Now, I don't, I don't really think any of them believed that. But maybe some of them did. They're starting to say, you know, we want to get on this guy's good side. It's the voice of a God, not of a man. Well, Agrippa's been through a lot of junk in his life. He's been through a lot of hard stuff. He's finally become somebody. So you know people that have kind of been at the low for a long time and finally get their ship coming in and people that really crave attention and crave approval? This is his, this is his day. They're, they're, they're loving him. They're eating everything he has to say up. Not only is he having a crowd that's listening to his every word, they're saying, oh, he's a God. This is the voice of a God, not of a man. What's the proper response at that point? Guys, I'm just a man. I'm not a God, not anywhere close to it. Let's, let's simmer that down right now. That's, that's the appropriate response. But instead, what happens in verse 23, it says this, And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. Wow, that's just, that's just the most pleasant thing you've read all day, isn't it? He did not give God the glory. He didn't stop them. He didn't say, guys... That's not true. Obviously what the scripture is implying, and it doesn't go into great detail about this, but obviously what the scripture is implying is that not only did he not stop the people, but he's reveling it. He's enjoying that they're calling him a God. He's enjoying it so much he opens himself up. He's enjoying it so much that he stands against God himself, and he is struck down, and Luke, who's a physician, tells us that he's eaten by worms. Now, 
modern day, we don't know, I don't know exactly what that was. Josephus, when he wrote his histories, said that he, uh, in the days following this, he had very extreme abdominal pains, and he died r- shortly after this. He fell down right away, but it took him a couple days to die. Uh, so we could say, you know, maybe it's a parasite, something bad. Uh, but whatever it is, it's not pleasant, and he died pretty quickly. All because he tried to take the glory that belonged to God for himself. Now, I don't think anybody here is going to drop dead. I don't think any of you are going to be eaten by worms. But we can learn a lesson from this. We can learn an important lesson. There is a glory that belongs to God. That is only his alone. And in no way do you ever step in the way of that. In no way do you try to take a little bit of that. In fact, you are increased by him being increased. The more we lift Jesus up, the more we're lifted up. The more he's magnified, the better things are for us. The more he's glorified, the, the, the more our life begins to echo his. See, here's what happened. As he began to just revel in this, he became an idol. And we as human beings are very prone to making idols. You know, sometimes we just think it's the Israelites because they're the ones we get to read about. But all throughout history, mankind has created idols. Now, what is an idol? You might think of it in the classical sense, like it's something you carve or it's something that you made out of stone or wood or precious metal. But in reality, an idol is anything that has taken the place of God in your life. It's taken the place that belonged to to Jesus. Not only, that doesn't mean you have to bow down and worship it for it to be an idol. If you trust something more than you trust God, it has taken that place in your life. If you trust your job more than you trust God to provide for you, that job has become an idol. If you trust this person more than you trust God, then all of a sudden you have elevated them to a place that they can't possibly stay in because we're only human. We were not created to be God. We were created to be in his image, in his likeness, but we were created to worship him. And you've been designed for worship. Since the very beginning, mankind is wired for worship. We're just wired for it, which is why throughout all of history, we've sought to find things we can elevate. When God was revealed to the Israelites, he said, worship me and me alone. He said, I'm a jealous God. He's not jealous because he's insecure. He's jealous because he loved them. I'm a jealous God. He said one of the Ten Commandments, as you know, was you shall worship one God, this God, and he alone shall you serve. This one, one God. The great Shema, which has been repeated over and over in Jewish households since it was first said thousands and thousands of years ago, says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. This is such a powerful thought. And the reason he had to to say it over and over again was not because we didn't know it, but because humanity was so prone to stray and create an idol. Why? Because for so long, God has been unseen. God has been something you have to trust in. You have to have faith that there is a God. You have to have faith that he's there. You have to have faith that he provides. You have to have faith that he's alive. He's not showing up physically all over the place. You have to believe in him. And so the trick with that is sometimes we don't want to trust in something we can't see. We'd rather trust in something we can see. I mean, how many of you have ever read, I know you've read it, but how many of you have thought this when you read the story of the Hebrew people 
building a golden calf while Moses was out on Mount, up on Mount Sinai meeting with God. And they build a golden calf. How many of you have just thought that was the stupidest thing in the world? Like, you, God split the sea for you. God caused water to come out of a rock for you. God caused all these, these things to deliver you from the Egyptians. And you think a calf that you made from your melted jewelry. And why a calf? I mean, really, have you ever looked at a calf like, and said, that's the most majestic creature I've ever seen in my life, and I just want to bow down and worship that thing? No. Man, a calf, they're great. We're thankful for them. They taste delicious. But I've never looked at one and said, oh, how glorious. What a glorious creature. Oh, I'm not worthy to stand in your presence. No, I've never felt that. But the reason it was a calf was quite simply because their neighbors had idols that looked like that. So they copied them. They said, you know, here's something we can see, we can touch, we can feel. It doesn't talk, it doesn't move, but at least we can see it. In modern times, we might think we're just too smart to have idols. But the truth is, our idols have become more subtle. Our idols have become less ridiculous. They're still just as ridiculous, but less ridiculous on the surface. We don't worship a wooden pole. We don't worship a golden calf. We don't worship a stone image of a man or of a woman. But at the same time, we've put things in an improper position. Like we've said before, good things in the wrong place become bad things. You might have a job that God gave you, but you put that job before him, it's an idol. And a good thing has become a bad thing. People in your life, relationships, if they've taken the wrong place in your life and, and you have put them in a place they can't possibly be sustained, good things have become bad things. Because there's only one that really belongs at the top, and that's God himself. And you will be most satisfied and most full of real joy when he's in the proper place. And everything else comes into line. We're going to do a little bit of cheating tonight because I know we're going through the book of Acts verse by verse, very linear, but we're going to skip ahead a little bit and maybe when we get there in a few weeks, we'll just say we already covered it. But I'd like you to go to Acts chapter 14 for a moment. Because I, rather than just uh, focusing on what can happen to a guy that stood against God and took the glory, uh, let's see the flip side of the coin and, and see what might happen if somebody were to refuse it. In Acts chapter 14, and, and we're going to start in uh, verse 8. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet. He was lame from his mother's womb. He had never walked. And this man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Laconian language, the gods have become like men and they've come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Now realize these are Greeks who believe in Greek mythology. Believe, to them it wasn't Greek mythology. To them it was reality. And they believe that it wasn't that odd for gods to come down. You think about it. Uh, a lot of their mythology were 
where people like Hercules or, or other, other uh, people that were demigods, you know, where the gods had come down and had an affair with a lady or something like that. This wasn't too weird for them that the gods would come and, and disguise themselves as people. You'd think that Paul being the leader, they'd think he was Zeus and Barnabas was Hermes, but Hermes in Greek mythology was the talker, the messenger, right? So since Paul was the preacher, they figure he's the messenger and that strong, silent guy, he must be Zeus. All because it was a miracle. And they begin to say this in verse 13. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you. And we preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things, vain meaning useless, worthless, no power, these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And then he goes on and begins to tell them how, well, let's just read the rest. In the generations gone, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness. In that he did good and he gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. So you see the flip side. On one hand, we've got Herod Agrippa, who is hearing people say, this is a voice of God, not of man. They didn't even say God, they said a God. This is the voice of a God, not of a man. And Herod's just eating it up, and he's struck down. But on the flip side, you see Paul and Barnabas seeing a miracle happen, a miracle that is from God. And these people are saying, well, these are gods. They've come to us, and they try to offer sacrifices. And watch what Paul and Barnabas do. They don't just ignore that. They are so distressed by the fact and the thought that somebody might offer sacrifices to them that they rush into the crowd and they tear their clothes. I mean, come on, guys. They're not bringing a big heavy suitcase with, you know, 15 different wardrobe options. They, you know, they're on the road, and they got their robes. And I don't know how heavy you travel. I mean, I have an idea. I, I know how heavy I travel, and I know how heavy my wife travels. And those are two different things most of the time. I know how my wife's suitcase feels because I'm the one that lifts it. I know how it feels when it, we leave for a Spokane. I know how it feels when we come back from Spokane. And more than once, I've purchased a little overpriced duffel bag from the airport gift shop so that I wouldn't have to pay the extra baggage fees or the, or the overweight baggage fees. But nevertheless, you know, Paul and Barnabas, they're, they're not caring a bunch of stuff. For them to tear their clothes, that's a big deal. That's how upset they are. That's how intense they are. That's how much they want to get across. Stop doing this. Don't worship us. Now watch what they say. We're men just like you. We're humans just like you. It's God who did this. And then they tell them, it's the God who created the heavens and the earth. It's the God who made everything, the earth and all that is in it. It's this God who's done this. And he says, you don't know him. You, you've, you've turned away from him. And that's why we're trying to tell you to turn from your vain idols and turn back to God. But let us tell you that you've known him. Though you didn't worship him, though you didn't acknowledge him, 
You saw him when you had rain in its season, when you had sun when you needed it, when you were provided for it. That was God the whole time. Listen to what he says. He did not leave you without a witness of who he was. They're pointing them back to God. Human beings are prone to idolatry. We're the ones that point them to the one true God. We've got to point ourselves there too. But I guess the question is, how much is that your problem? Now, here's why it comes up. You might say, I've never been in this position. Nobody's ever called me a God. Nobody's ever tried to offer sacrifices to me. But listen, I believe very, very sincerely, I believe that God is going to use you to do great and mighty things. I believe signs and wonders are going to be demonstrated to you, not because you're special, but because you're a believer. And if I believe that, then you also got to believe at some point, somebody's going to be weird about it. At some point, somebody's going to misunderstand it. At some point, somebody's going to try to put you in a position you don't belong. And the question is, do I just ignore it or do I do something about it? No, I don't want you hunting people down, knocking on their doors, going, I noticed that you were clapping for me extra loud. I just want to tell you I'm not a god. That's a little bit over the edge, right? It's a little extreme. But there are times where we must... First of all, be confident in who you are. You know, I, I, the other side of taking glory for yourself is being so insecure and so worried that you're going to steal some glory that you don't do what God told you to do. You know, Paul tells this guy, he doesn't go, oh, let, me just, let, me just, let me just pray for you and I'm going to ask God. I don't know what he'll do. I'm just a man. I'm just a man. No, he tells him, just get up. Get up and walk. And the man gets up. So you have to have confidence in your authority in Jesus Christ. You've got to have confidence in who you are in him. Stop being so falsely humble that you're no good to anybody. But real humility is necessary. Real humility doesn't say, I'm nothing, I'll never do anything, I'm dumb, just useless. Real humility says, without him I'm nothing, but through him I can do all things. Real humility says, I know who I am in him. And in him there is nothing impossible. And yet I know, apart from him, I can do nothing. Here's the thing. Anytime you do something obvious, or you, God puts you in a position, now you notice that Jesus said, I've put you, I put you on a lampstand. And the lampstand's supposed to give light to everybody that's in the house. It's God that has exalted you. It's God that will put you in a position where people can see what he's doing through you. So many times we're too afraid to be seen, so we try to hide. But Jesus said, you don't stick your lamp under the bushel. You don't stick it under the bed. You put it on a lampstand for everyone to see. Sometimes Christians are so afraid that people are going to take it wrong that they hide what God has given them. Let it shine because when you let his light shine in you, he's glorified. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they would glorify your father in, his, in heaven. When they see your good works, they will glorify the father. God gets glory through you. But in order for that to happen, in order for God to get glory through you and through what you're doing through him, sometimes you've got to redirect some mistaken identity. Sometimes you've got to redirect it. Sometimes you've got to say, hey, listen, thank you, but everything I've done has become 
because, because of him. Everything good that's come from me has come from him. And without him, there's nothing to it. There's nothing I could do. Paul and Barnabas saw it as important enough that they would tear their clothes and beg people and stop them from offering sacrifices. It may never be that obvious for you, but let me just give you some examples. In ministry, let me give you an example of this. In ministry, there's plenty of opportunities, and maybe you have had these opportunities. There's going to be plenty of opportunities to pray for the sick and see them healed. There's plenty of opportunities to give a word that, will, that God gives you a word for somebody. It totally reads their mail, and, and they don't know how you knew it, but, but God just opened their heart. There's plenty of these things where God does something supernatural through you. When that happens, there's a lot of people who begin to look to you instead of looking to Jesus. It just happens. You become their personal guru, and they want to go to you, and they want to go to you. You got a word for me. You got a word for me. Sometimes you do have a word for somebody, but we're never a replacement for Jesus. And if Jesus wants to work through us, the Holy Spirit will work through us, but I can't replace him, nor do I want to. The Bible says there is one mediator between God and man. There's There's one person standing in between you and God, and that's Jesus Christ. That's not a priest. It's not a prophet. It's nobody but Jesus. Now, God will use people to get you a message. God will use people to lay hands on you and see you healed. God will use people to be agents of deliverance, but you've got to know where that power comes from. And you've got to be able to direct it in the right place. And if you're that person, and some point in your life you will, somebody will try to elevate you to a position you know you don't belong in. And sometimes you've got to do what Paul and Barnabas did and say, that's not for me. You've got to know who it comes from. Because humanity, even in church, will look to, to trust something they can see. Sometimes that becomes a person. You know, some of the, the, the people that you might admire, I've, I've read books by, by those that have walked in, in great gifts from God and, and seen people healed over and over again in their meetings. And one thing they've said is they've had to say over and over again, I'm not healing anybody, it's Jesus. And they've had to say it because people will come. I remember hearing one guy in particular who has had great, you know, he's with the Lord now, but had great success in many meetings. And he said, you know, a lot of times when we'd see somebody go home disappointed, it's because they were looking at me. They came to the meeting because of me. And they were looking at me as they're, finally this guy's going to fix it all. You're looking to the wrong guy. I'm just a servant. I'm just ministering something that God is giving to you through me. But it's not me. And when you elevate somebody to that position, they can't stay there. And ultimately, that's idolatry. You may not think of it that way, but there's idolatry even in the church. When we put people on a pedestal, they can't, they just, they can't stay there. That's not where they belong. Thank God we honor people. The scripture talks about honoring, talks about honoring the people that teach you. Talks about honoring the people that serve and don't get any honor from any other way. Like the people that are serving behind the scenes, it says give them honor. It says the one that teaches you, give them a double honor. It says all of these things. But honor and worship and honor and glory are different things. We become part and partakers of the glory of God when we know how to give glory to God. I want you to read something in Romans chapter 1 because it goes right along with what Paul said. 
Watch what Paul says. He directs them back to the fact that God has made himself known through nature. God has made himself known through everything around you. He's wanted to know you. He's always been here. He is the God who made the heavens and the earth. You see what he's doing? He's showing them. He's pointing them back to the creator. Because what they've been worshiping through their Greek mythology, through this latest little round of worship, everything they've done has been worshiping the created instead of the creator. And that's the mistake we all make, isn't it? When you desire something that's something or someone that's created more than you desire the creator himself. When you honor a created thing more than the creator itself, it gets out of order. Look what it says in Romans chapter 1. And we'll skip on down in Romans chapter 1. We'll skip on down to verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what was, has been made, so that they are without excuse. Do you remember Paul said, he didn't leave you without a witness? You've not been without a witness. Now, maybe you didn't know God like these people did. Maybe you didn't know the stories. Maybe you hadn't been taught correctly. But God did not leave you without a witness. Here he says, God has been clearly seen when you looked at the mountains, when you looked at the forests, when you looked at these beautiful creatures, you knew something inside you knew this wasn't an accident. In fact, it even says his nature, his character, his attributes were, were made known. It says, so we're without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. See, that is the beginning of when everything goes wrong. You cease to honor God. You cease to give him thanks. A thankful heart is a worshipful heart. Worship and thanksgiving are one and the same. They go hand in hand. And so we're thankful when we recognize, think about it. When's the last time you looked outside and said, thank you, Lord? Maybe some of you it was this morning. Maybe some of you, it's been a while. What happened in Romans 1 is that stuff's always been there, but they stopped acknowledging that it was God behind it. Have you ever thought how hard it is in North America for us to be satisfied? Sometimes you just, you know, how much stuff we need. Just this, 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 and we're still, uh, I'll be happier if I get this. But then you kind of just, you get born again or you get revived and you walk outside and you just breathe and you look up and you go, wow, thank you, Jesus. Man, this is amazing. He was, I mean, if you just, if you learn to be satisfied in him and you could go for a walk five minutes down the block and be just thrilled because all of a sudden you're seeing this is God. God created this. His hands and all of this. And he did it for me. And I'm getting to breathe it. My eyes are working and I can see it. Isn't this wonderful? I mean, when you're satisfied in him, it's easy to stay satisfied. And what's going on around you is not affecting you near as much because you're just full of joy. But look what it says. It says, when they stopped honoring God, when they stopped giving him thanks, they became futile. What does futile mean? It means useless. They became futile in their speculations 
and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Look at that. They, tra- they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. This was the core root of so many of our false idolatry, our false religions. And in fact, he goes on and talks about their own bodies are dishonored. He talks about sexual immorality. He talks about all these things that started with not giving him thanks. Do you know how much, if all that could be messed up by failing to acknowledge God? Because really, a lot of sin is idolatry. A lot of this is idolatry. Do you know how much it can come back together? When you put him where he's supposed to be. If it all could fall apart by failing to give him thanks and failing to give him honor and glory, don't you know it can all be put back together? Life can suddenly make sense when you put God in his proper place and you begin to serve the creator and honor the creator rather than the created things. This was the issue with Agrippa, with Herod. He was just a created man who tried to take the place of the creator. And we were not designed to be in that position. Paul and Barnabas understood this. And that's why they said very clearly, we're just men like you, with a nature like you. And that's why they start to throw in those things about God creating the heavens and the earth. They're emphasizing there's a difference between the creator and created. That always has to be something that we're very aware of. Because when you give God glory as the creator, then the created things, why did he create these things? Look, it says through nature he showed his attributes. Those were good things. Those animals, wonderful. Those people, wonderful. Those trees, the sun, the moon, the the mountains, wonderful. But all of a sudden they become bad because people start worshiping them. Good things that God has created for your pleasure and God has created for your good and for your enjoyment, they become twisted and perverted when you put them in a place they're never meant to be. For some people, that's money. For other people, it's relationships. For some people, it's all sorts of stuff. And addiction comes out of these things. And and perversion comes out of these things. All because you elevated something to a place where where it would supply for you. It would meet your needs. Or this person is going to meet your needs. But there's only one who can really meet your needs. And that's God. I believe the most whole relationships as far as a man and a woman are concerned. When you come and you say, he meets my needs, I am complete in him, and two complete people come together, they make a whole. And I know it's okay. It's okay to say you complete me. I get that. It's romantic. It's cliche. But yeah, it's okay. I get what you're saying because when Jesus, when Jesus said that God took, took man and woman and the two became one flesh and they became one, then I get it. When you become one, when that other person's away, you feel like part of you is gone. I get that. And God created man for woman and woman for man, and they go together, and they do, in a way, complete each other because God made them different to complement one another. 
But ultimately, if you are unsatisfied and you think, well, this relationship's going to satisfy me, that never works. You know it doesn't work. And I know I'm not teaching in the youth group tonight. They probably could use it more than you guys. But when you put a job in that position, put food in that position, whatever you're putting in that position, I need this. This satisfies, this, this is what I need. This is what's going to make all the difference. You ever wonder why it's a bad idea, why we've never counseled anybody to go pray over a lottery ticket and, 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 and just say, Lord, mm, make me win the lottery? It's because that lotto ticket has suddenly become God. This will change everything. This will provide for me. This will meet my needs. You've created an idol out of a little piece of paper. When God can provide your needs, he can meet your needs. He can bless you. He can take care of everything. You look to him. Somebody says, well, that's, I am. I'm expecting God to do it. Let him do it his way. And I'm telling you, this story may be about a guy who got it wrong, but that doesn't mean we have to get it wrong. And I think it's very important for you, number one, that you, don't, that you watch for the things that have become idols in your own life. Everything that pushes out God. You think about it. He, he, he put some certain rules in place in the Old Testament to kind of idolatry-proof them. They still fell into idolatry, but think about some of the things he said. Every seventh day, actually the first day, the Sabbath day, and you could, no, no, he called it the seventh day. I'm sorry. Church called it, the church went to the first day, but in the Old Testament, it was the seventh day. The Sabbath day, every Sabbath day, you were meant to take off work, don't work, rest. You were demonstrating, we trust God. We're going to rest. This is a day of worship. This day is holy to the Lord. And so you might have guys that say, no, I got to work the seventh day. We got to get that harvest in. And they're saying, give that day to God. And those other six days will go a lot further than the seven days you would have had. He said, bring the tithe into the storehouse. That makes no sense. I got to give 10% of everything I have. No, Lord, I can't afford to tithe. And he says, you can't afford not to because what you can do with 100%, I can do so much more with 90%. But through that 10%, you're showing me who, who you really trust. When you start to elevate things and you say, well, this month it just doesn't work. Or, or we're just too busy right now. Or this, 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 this. And we put things in the place of God. They can't hold the weight. But God can. And he can. And when we put that trust in him, all of a sudden, the created things make sense again. And you can enjoy them again. Because they're not having to be something in your life that they were never created to be. God created the sun, but when people start worshiping the sun, it's out of order. God created marijuana, and I don't know why, but I sure know he didn't create it to be smoked. God might have created these things, but when you put them on the improper position, suddenly they're a detriment in your life. I'll tell you why I say that about, I mean, why I say that about marijuana. I'm just, pick that out of the air for fun. I know nobody here is a pothead. Right? <laughs> you might say, well, it's not hurting anybody. No, it's not. But you know what it does? Makes you okay with being, well, it probably does hurt people. You might say it doesn't hurt other people, but it probably does. It makes you, it, it, it puts you in a place where in order to de-stress, in order to relax, you need this thing. 
makes you okay with being bored instead of going out and doing something. It often leads to other things. It becomes something in your life that it shouldn't be. It takes the place of what God's supposed to be to you. Suddenly you're using substances to get you there. Any substance that you need to replace the working of the Holy Spirit in your, whole, in your life. You know, his peace is beyond anything. His energy is beyond anything. You know, I, I, one, one speaker once said, you know, some of, she, she was saying this about herself, I think. You know, maybe some of her close friends. She said, you know, coffee's wonderful. Chocolate, chocolate's wonderful. But it is a poor substitute for the Holy Spirit. You know, you need a bit of coffee before you do this. You need a bit of coffee before that. Coffee's great. Enjoy your coffee. But don't get to the place that you elevate it beyond what it should be. We were talking about this in Loon Lake. And <laughs> I mean, we just, just such precious souls in our Thursday night Bible study. And we were having a great time. And we, I was saying, you know, there's things that are just good. But if, if, you, if, you, if you overemphasize them, if you put too much on them, they become not good in your life. And, and that's different for everybody in certain, some things. Like I was saying, coffee, that's different for everybody. Some people are great with this much. Some people are great with this much. Some people, they don't want to have any at all. That's cool. But I had one lady, and I, I said, you know, one of the, the things I've discovered is I find out if something's got a hold on me, if I'm enslaved to something, if I'm addicted to something, if I'm gripped by it, the best way to find out is I just say, well, let me give it up for a week and see how well I do. If you struggle giving it up for a week, you might have a problem. So this lady, and she's just a wonderful lady, and she looked and she said, so, like, what about my coffee? Like, I don't know, should I, what, how, do I, how should I feel about my coffee? And I said, oh, I don't know. I said, that's up to you and Jesus. But I said, the fact that you're calling it my coffee might be, a, <laughs> might be an indicator of where you're at. <laughs> That, that might be your first little yellow, yellow flag, your yellow light, caution. I need my coffee, really. Huh? I've gone on a rabbit trail. Let me get back. You've got to understand some of these things I'm saying are arbitrary. Some of them aren't. It's interesting, through Romans 1 and through other places in the Bible, if you wanted to take your time, you could find out that every addiction... Number one comes out of brokenness, and Jesus wants to heal it. Amen? He's the deliverer. He'll deliver everybody. But a lot of it comes out of guys that are addicted to pornography, women too. Other things, addiction to substances, they're all coming from you trying to fill a need that wasn't supposed to be filled by something on the outside. It comes from idolatry. In fact, in Romans 1, it says we stopped worshiping the true God and we, be, we were turned over to lust. We were turned over to corruption of our bodies. And I say this to you because I love you. When you put things in the right place and never put anything before God, then you can really enjoy these things. Don't take that and think you should go out and smoke marijuana. That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> but there are a lot of things that are inherently good, created for you. When they're out of their place, they're bad. But listen to this. You're also going to be the people that go and lay hands on the sick and see them recover. You're going to be the people that have a word from the Lord for somebody that will set them free. And there are going to be a few of those people that look to you like you did it. It's important at that point that you're able to direct them back to the one who really did it. It's God who did this for you. And it's God who'll do it again. I'm just a servant. He's the one that did this. Don't go so far 
that you're afraid to be used by God for fear that you'll be elevated too high. Jesus says, I want to put you on a lampstand so that the Father will give glory. The Bible says, God will exalt you in due time. When you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, he will exalt you in due time. God wants to lift you up. So God wants to put you in a place where you can be seen. But he's going to put people in that position that can be trusted with it. You can know, hey, I'm just doing this because I'm connected to the vine. You're healed because Jesus loves you. You're healed because he's your healer. But thank God, I'm not afraid to be used by God. Agrippa found out the hard way. You can't take the place of God and succeed. Paul and Barnabas found out the hard way that some people would try to force you into that position. But never be afraid to just be so confident in who you are in Jesus Christ, to be truly humble. And truly humble means you never take the glory for yourself, but you're never afraid to walk out and step out and be used by God. When we give glory to God, we partake in his glory. When we give him glory, we get to experience his glory. And that's a wonderful thing. Thank God we are his people. Not just his servants, but his sons and his daughters. And that's a high calling. Let's keep him in the proper place. Amen.